I either played piano in or conducted everything I wrote, including an orchestra piece uh, in college. So I had a lot of experience that way, which uh, proved invaluable to me later on. Actually, while I was a, uh, an undergraduate at Lawrence, uh, I went to Tanglewood um, uh, between my junior and senior years, which was a great event for me. Um, uh, there I got to know all the all the big shots of the day. And um, this was in the 1960s, middle 1960s, so Gunther Schuller was running the show. I studied with Arthur Berger, uh, who was was a very good teacher for me. Oh, you went to Tanglewood as like a student, not just yes. to go see stuff. Oh, no, yeah, no, I was a student. I, uh, yeah, I was a fellow uh, at the age of uh, 21, yeah, which was young. For, um, it's, it's unusual to be there that young, but what I was. What was the average age of the person there? Oh, late 20s, probably. Well, um, okay, so can because that's you know, that's almost a famous time in Tanglewood too for the people who were for the people who were there. I would almost say it was it's known for its heyday. So, what were the lessons like at that point? Um, well, I, I never I, Gunther was all has always been a, a friend and supporter, uh, but I didn't study with him. Uh, so Arthur Berger uh, taught me. Uh, he paid very careful attention to to the pitches, to the harmonies, and made made me. Uh, be responsible for every pitch I wrote, um, but there were there were meetings, you know, in these cabins around you know, individual meetings with teachers. Um, I went back to Tanglewood a couple years later and studied with Roger Sessions, who influenced me in other ways. Uh, for Roger, it was more um, sort of who he was and, and what he represented, uh, sort of a sort of a father figure, I suppose. Um, what did he represent? He represented um, the the uh, the great tradition and, and and high craftsmanship and a and a sort of a represented represented uh, uh, art music as a high calling. He was um, there was something about him that was very idealistic and uh, and very serious. And uh, so you know, we could talk about Bach or Beethoven as much as Schoenberg or. Or Boulez, you know, for him it was all, uh, you know, what was great or not great. And so he was, uh, gave me a feeling about what kind of career I wanted to have. Whereas for Arthur Berger, before that, it was more details of, of uh, especially pitch structure in my music. And I also uh, had a lesson with Aaron Copeland because uh, my friend David Del Tredici, uh, who was, had been uh, one of the commission composers there, recommended me to Copeland, so I had a, a long lesson with Copeland, which was interesting. I think what I remember most was, was several things, but he, he wanted me to... In those days, he, uh, you know, we didn't have playback on computers, so I had a score, and I played it at the piano, and that's the, that's the way one did things. So he was very interested in the fact that I was neither writing uh, neoclassical music nor 12-tone music, and he found that incomprehensible. Uh, because he he needed order, and so if you're if you're a neoclassic composer, then you had all the the tonal procedures that that came out of that sort of ordered di- uh, distortion of of classical procedures. And uh, if you did twelve tone music, then you you did, had that. And of course, in his own career, he switched from one to the other. Wait, so he needed order in terms of what category? Uh, no, in, in terms of the actual what? Why would one note follow another? You know, what what or one harmony and one another? That I would do neither one was for him. Uh, to uh, unstructured. Is that what he said? Though he said you have to do one or the other. You can't. He didn't say I had to, but 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 he expressed his discomfort with a third way, which to me was an interesting 
point about him, not about me. You know. What's yeah. your music like at this point? What does it uh, sound my like? music, well, you know, you're a college student, so you're going through various phases of imitation. I had, in high school, I'd passed through my Bartok phase, and then I, in college, I discovered uh, Webern and uh, Schoenberg. And Stravinsky had been an influence also. So I, I think my pieces varied a great deal from, from piece to piece. I didn't find my voice as a composer until a few years later when I was, um, you know, 23 or 24, um, when I started to really find my own voice. Uh, so I was a talented imitator, I suppose. Do you think it's important to do that, to learn, just learn how to imitate for a while? Well, I, think, I think it's inevitable, uh, and uh, yes. I think every composer goes through that. I don't know. I don't think I've ever seen an exception. Sure, that's how one, we learn in life, and in every respect, and not just as, as composers. Uh, some composers never get beyond that phase, but I did. Do you think they they just get stuck uh, in someone else's? It's uh, some composers write music, and they like to write music, and it's interesting and fun, and whatever they're ambitious, but they don't. Uh, they're not original. I mean, b- being original is is. Uh, it's not something can really that can be taught. It can be guided. I try to guide my students that way, but uh, and try to help them find their voice. But ultimately, it's it's what's within. How do you guide them in that way? Okay, so I'm composer X. I go into a lesson with you, and I do something that is completely derivative. What do you say to me? I try to. Um, well, let me put it this way. I, I, it's convenient to divide teaching composition into two bins. Uh, one of them is craftsmanship, and there you can talk about orchestration or harmony or you know rhythm or form or whatever it might be. And there, to some extent, it's uh, it's quite technical, depending on the on the case. The, that's the easier part in a certain sense. The harder part is uh, is helping a student stop looking over his or her shoulder and uh, trying to please whatever preconception the person has about what should be pleased. And uh, to to find his or her own uh, way, and um, sometimes there's no problem at all. It's just as there. Other times it's hard. Uh, sometimes it never comes. But <clears throat> it's more psychoanalytical in a certain sense. It's sometimes it's just a long conversation about what that person really cares about, or what you know. It might be a wide ranging discussion. Sometimes it's finding a particular moment in a piece that the student cares most about. Because those moments are usually moments that, that uh, reveal something fundamental about what the composer is after. You do do that. You try and put it in a more social... Con- you said looking over the, their shoulder, meaning that you do, within the lesson, acknowledge that there are social pressures oh, of course. Out, you know, out there. And by that, I mean seen that's kind of like pushing people in a certain yes, direction. Uh, yes, you try and make them resistant to that or aware of it at least? Uh, certainly aware of it, and I hope resistant to it. I mean, depending on wh- what country you're in and what school of thought you're in, uh, there is a certain standard that you're supposed to meet, uh, you think. But you know, the composer that you're imitating, who probably was original or is original, wasn't looking over his shoulder. Anybody who just imitates is, is uh, never going to last you never know what's going to last, but um, you, think that, you think there's a shelf life. They're just part of a trend, and that trend yeah. will eventually end, and then you know yes, the yes. powers that be will discard them. As one of those composers who we don't well, need to commission anymore. Yes, uh, I mean it's true that certain people are very good at at procuring uh, commissions, which is great. But it's not that I think originality is the be all and end all, but I think it's very important, and um, I distinguish between uh, novelty and originality. An original composer doesn't have to be innovative. 
um, in a technical sense. It can be something much more subtle. Um, music that's really of interest is, is in some sense original, and uh, it has to come from within. So I think it's very important to know what's going on around you and around the, kind of around the world, in fact. But I, find, I think most composers are, uh, really never get beyond a, an imitative stage. How do you, uh, how do you resist it? What are your strategies to? You know, well, I'm too old, I'm too old now to uh, to worry too much about that. How did I resist it? I have a, a very strong sense of uh, discomfort if I'm unhappy with what I'm writing, uh, or of pleasure if I'm if I feel I'm doing well. It's it's, uh, it's very emotional and very intuitive, and um, you know it's it, it's also it's not just um, intuitive because it it involves musical structure and whether the music coheres and. And things like that. So, um, when I was a, a young composer, this is after the Tanglewood period, but um, I, uh, I actually went through a, a number of years of, of kind of uh, in my output, even though I had written some music that I still think is quite good before that. Um, but I, I, the reason I went through this block was because uh, I saw all these things around me, and it, it was very confusing. Uh, all these different schools of thought and all these different influences, and I didn't want to uh, compose in a certain way just because some teacher uh, had done that. I mean, that didn't interest me. So I, I was tr- trying to find myself, and it took. It was a real struggle. How long did it take? Uh, well, if these things come in stages. It's very hard to say how long that would take. A part of it was uh, to find a, 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 a kind of a set of beliefs and a set of principles and, and a kind of syntax, because I'm, I'm a structuralist at heart. So it was also an intellectual pursuit, but I would say that in by 1968, I I had uh, written one really good piece called Wake, uh, which won some prizes and sort of put me on the map. Yeah, I got a beautiful recording out of it and and so forth. So uh, at that point, I collapsed. I'd written a really good piece, but it uh, it took everything out of me because I didn't know what I was doing. And um, so I, I just couldn't continue that way. Uh, then I struggled for at least five years, uh, writing almost nothing. This was in my late twenties. Right, say that. How many? Five years? At least five years. It's a long time. Well, I wrote some music, but it was most of it wasn't very good. And eventually, I came out with a piece that I thought was good in 1973, which actually wasn't as good as I thought it was. Uh, but it showed that what I was struggling with, and then uh, by 1974, I wrote a, again. I finally wrote a good piece, but I, by, by then I was beginning to put together my musical language uh, that I've uh, developed ever since, and um, I had a, an intellectual framework to work within. And uh, yeah, so I went through a, a good long stretch there of, of uh, more than five years when um, it was really difficult. And of course, composing is never just easy. When, especially if one doesn't want to repeat oneself. But I'd found my, my creative world by then, and it was really my own creative world. So then I didn't worry about my originality because I, I felt I had it. Yeah, and there's a difference between, okay, it's always supposed to be difficult, but there's a difference between being difficult and being completely dissatisfied with every part of it, right? Yeah. Anyway, so you found this intellectual framework. Right. Do you feel like you needed that? Absolutely. Yes, this brings us back to the remark about Copeland, uh, because I also needed an intellectual framework, and I wasn't going to. I was not interested in writing neo music, particularly. Uh, I mean, sometimes I I indulge in it a little bit, but but basically, it's not where I'm at. And uh, I uh, I rejected twelve tone music. I went to Princeton. I studied with Milton Babbitt for graduate school and other people, uh, Earl Kim. 
and uh, I re admired Milton's intelligence and originality and uh, wit, but he was composing by a method that was uh, that you could only decode. You can't hear the, all those structures he composes into it. And I, so I, I was not interested in, in writing music that, that was by, written by a secret code, which I think is uh, true of a lot of 20th century musical systems and uh, to me very unsatisfactory that there should be such a gap between a comp alleged compositional method and, and the end result. So then I wanted to, because I've always had scientific interests, I wanted to understand the musical mind better so that I could uh, com compose uh, in ways that, that took advantage of sort of natural proclivities of how we, we structure music as listeners. So that got me into, um, into music theory, which is another profession of mine. I read uh, Chomsky and about you know, his study of, of uh, language capacity, so I wanted to develop a theory of the musical capacity. And I got together with a linguist, Ray Jackendoff, and we, we started building a theory of how people hear music, and uh, which has had a, a big impact, I guess, uh, in the field of music cognition, the music theory. But that was, uh, in, in starting to build that theory, uh, I was also building my, my compositional universe. So I was drawing on what I, what I was uh, learning or what I was structures that I was positing uh, uh, about listening. So it all went hand in hand. So, so for me, I, I take a very unusual course, which I wouldn't recommend to anybody, especially it just it happened to be my way, which was to build a theory and, and my compositional uh, style hand in hand. The book is called The Generative Theory of Tonal Music. It's published in the early 80s, and it's one of the founding documents of the, of the modern field of music cognition. And then I continued in doing, doing music theory since, uh, after, uh, after the collaboration with Ray. So I've, I've gone back and forth between composing and theorizing. They've always um, influenced each other, the theorizing and, and the composing. And uh, so by building up these, uh, this way of, uh, of thinking about music, it freed me and allowed me to be more expressive and, and more to exist within my world and to expand it in ways that were, were, my, were special to me. Did it give you choices to make, or did it give you reasons to justify the choices you were making? More the former. It, it gave me cho it gave me a framework to build musical structures, and therefore to build uh, different kinds of musical expression. What's your opinion of it as the result? Are you happy with the? Is there still a gap? Uh, well, the theory is a theory of listening. So the uh, the uh, the ways in which I use it as a composer are strict or not strict, depending on my needs. So um, I I don't believe in in too close a relationship. The theory itself is is predictive about human listening, and I've collaborated with you know experimental psychologists and things like that to um, to test it. So there's part of my work that's just uh, either it works or it doesn't, or you try, or if it doesn't work, you try to figure out why and try to make the theory better. So the relationship of that to, to composing is is a personal one, and um, it varies from piece to piece. But I guess I I think that on the whole, my music um, I hope anyway. Gives even though it's quite complex, it, it gives access to uh, the listener into into the world of how it's structured. It doesn't mean that that uh, the listener will hear everything that I'm doing. I don't wouldn't want that even because uh, even I don't remember always. It's not one of those pieces. Where, it's not like a Babbitt piece where you can no, sit down and be like, look at this perfectly contained world. It's something that 
you can draw upon to give you certain choices or if you... Yes. Yeah, and yeah. So there are certain things that I do. In some pieces, uh, there are really strict things that I do, although I would never go as far as Babbitt. And some of those things are not very perceivable. So I mean, sometimes, sometimes I do play those kinds of games. But, but the, uh, the basic ways in which my, organi- my music is organized are, are audible, I think, and at least I hope so. Uh, I, I like art that is uh, complex, but on some level accessible. So if you read um, Shakespeare or something, I mean, it is very complex and you can study it and learn all kinds of things, but still it's, it's a great story. Certain basic things are just there. At the, at the same time, I'm, music that's really simple, that's sort of where you get it all in one hearing, is less interesting to me. So uh, I like a, a certain level of difficulty, but not this uh, secret code stuff that is so characteristic of, of a lot of music since uh, Schoenberg. How it relates to my composing, which we've this conversation has gotten removed from. Yeah, it's uh, fine. We'll go back to um, Is indirect. Or, or, but I've, all, I've thought that I... Well, actually, I want to write, start writing some pieces. I haven't written very much vocal music uh, recently, but I want to get back to it, and I want to do it in ways that, that, really, that in which I can apply my my mapping between the sounds of poetry and uh, musical structure, I want to be able to use that in, in, in writing for voice. That would be one a, a novel way that nobody's done where I'm, I've developed this theory and I, I, I can start applying it in ways that I'm not sure yet how I'll do it, but um, I think it could lead to just to some interesting results in my music. So your music is also constantly in flux because of these other theoretical ideas that are coming in into your own head and you're developing. Uh, yes, it's, that's true, but it's also music is in flux because of the reasons that it is for any composer, which is you change as your life goes on, you hear different kinds of composers, uh, uh, music by different kinds of composers, your, your students sometimes inspire you, uh, all kinds of reasons. So music evolves. Um, if, if, I were, if it didn't evolve, if my music stayed the same, then I think it would die you know, in some fundamental way. So I, I keep trying to do, to do fresh things. I have a, in mind a piece that I have, I'm having trouble starting because I'm trying to uh, relate the idea. It, it's, I'm trying to do things in this piece that I've never done before. I'm trying to relate it to what I have done before. And I'm trying to figure out how, you know, what the, how that works. What that says, I suppose, about me is that I've created this uh, my own little universe, which I hope is expanding all the time, and um, I want to stay within that. So, but in ways that I haven't done before. So, to completely step outside of it is not something I want to do. Um, I want to evolve within my own the universe of, of th- musical thought. Um, this is an aesthetic choice, partly, and it's partly a deep uh, need. I suppose, for a kind of unity in my work. We're sitting at a prestigious institution right now. Do you preach it in a way? I mean, I don't mean like you have to do, you have to be this way, but do you recommend it to students? Hey, you know, I can see that there's this gap that you're dissatisfied with between yeah. the methodology, you know, the, the theory and the cognition of it. Maybe you want to look at this thing that I've been working on for 30 years. More than 30 years. For a long time, I kept them pretty private. Uh, so when I was teaching composition, why I... Keep tra- it, why keep it private? I, why did I? Yeah, th- th- I'm not sure what, how to answer you. Um, it's something I struggled with, actually, as a, as a teacher. I've always believed in, in first approaching a student on his or her terms. I've never been enamored of the more European-style thing where you have the master and the apprentice. 
I think that's kind of an American sensibility. We we we're, we're such a heterogeneous culture. I agree. Yeah. Um, that that sort of master slave relationship. Although it ha- there is something to recommend it. I mean, you sometimes if certain people have said do it my way, and then you student learns a lot by doing it that way and maybe rebelling against it. Uh, so I'm not saying that it's entirely bad, but but it's never something that I wanted to do. And that dynamic is present here at Columbia a little bit. I mean, you have European composers uh, teaching yeah, here. Yeah, well, uh, yes, uh, Tristan Mirai, uh, my f- former colleague, was was like that. He taught that way. Uh, I would say uh, he taught what he what he had, what interested himself. But I don't teach that way. It's 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 not my nature to do so. So I've always approached students. Um, through themselves, you know, at the same time trying to teach craftsmanship where, where I could. So I think there's a kind of reticence uh, on that level. But gradually over the years, um, especially in the last decade, I've published some about the relationship between composition and theory in my own work, which I didn't do for a long time. And I've, um, I give lectures about it, uh, sometimes, you know, at various places. I gave a series, I gave the so-called Bloch lectures at uh, University of California, Berkeley, um, almost two years ago, and that was the subject. It was a series of lectures called Composition and Cognition. So it was all about that subject. So I've, because of that, I've periodically given a course called Composition and Cognition. I did it uh, a year ago here at Columbia. I did it at UC Berkeley when I was there as a visiting professor. And I, I was just in, in France at a, at a new music festival where I was teaching, and uh, I brought out a lot of that material too. So I'm, I'm doing that more and more. Um, so I'm, when I do it, I do it uh, not theoretically and formally, but I, I present people with things I know about musical cognition and ideas they might think about and present them with the fact that they're, what they're doing is disorganized and they don't know what they're doing and they should um, maybe think about that. So it's become much more part of my teaching in the past decade, and I think that's probably a good thing. Do people take to it? Uh, yeah, I think it depends on the student. I mean, there's a lot of interest out there uh, in music perception and cognition. Most composers are less theoretical than I am, and, and their music is less structured than my own music, uh, on average, I would say, which alarms me a little bit. I, I think that, well, just to give to make this a little more concrete, in general, uh, timbral issues have become more and more important to con- uh, composition ever since Berlioz and Wagner, so mid-19th century, and increasingly in the 20th century, and then when uh, computer music came along, it became front center. And uh, so everybody's interested in timbre and different new sounds. And the whole spectral movement really evolved out of that trend. But nobody knows how to organize timbre very well. So this is a really great issue of of modern music. Um, Also extended techniques. Also, uh, more and more of my students uh, write microtonally. Uh, which interests me a lot too, but most of them don't know what they're doing. They don't know why they're doing it, and often there's some arbitrary reason, like they they sampled some sound and did a an analysis of the of the spectrum, and you know then they use that to get, get them their harmonies or something like that, which is essentially an arbitrary method. Wait, so, I don't know how is that an arbitrary me- method. Well, because why that sound as opposed to another sound, you know, it's and that it, worries it, you that that's where their thinking stops. Because yes. because the answer is because I like it, right, right. at that point, because right. I think it's a cool sound That's and it right. gets an interesting result. That's right. But That's if they're doing that to make art, then it also makes a connection with some other... I'm sure you've heard this argument a billion times, but like if they're, do, if they're doing this to 
make art, and that also has a visceral connection with somebody else who is living with them in the same time and place and also hears and thinks it's cool, then how does them thinking to that point and stopping disqualify the it doesn't, thing? It doesn't disqualify it. Um, you know, whatever leads you to Rome is, is uh, great. So uh, I'm never somebody who uh, proscribes uh, this or that. Whatever works uh, has to be taken seriously. But in general, uh, to proceed in such an ad hoc manner, it's very limiting. It doesn't lead to a, to a larger kind of way of thinking and, and a, a structuring that uh, can, can get very far. It means that everything happens, it tends to happen at a very local level. Uh, in other words, this is a really beautiful harmony, this is a beautiful sound. Or, uh, you know, it's, it, so the music tends to be atomized in, into the details of the musical surface. Maybe, you know, for some composers that's okay. Uh, and if, if it's okay with my students, then I don't bother pushing the matter. But if they're interested in, in, a, in, a, in a more structured way of thinking, then um, I have things to tell them. It depends on the claim they're making then, on how much you're pushing them. Yeah. I mean, I might point out that uh, the preoccupation with extended techniques and sort of ad hoc microtonal techniques and the different kinds of spectral things has something that's been, it's something that's been very constant for about 30 or so years now. Uh, going back to Lachenmann and uh, Chiarino, I suppose, in the 1970s, who are still sort of uh, what the composers that are a lot of composers are trying to imitate. So in a certain sense, I would say that the quote avant-garde has been going in circles for 30-plus years. Uh, it's been a very static period in music history. Not much has changed. And there, but the real, real reason for that, uh, in my opinion, is uh, not sociological or aesthetic in some philosophical sense, uh, but it's a, a technical issue, which is that it's very difficult to to find ways to organize these new musical materials, and very challenging and very interesting. Why is it so difficult? Uh, because, uh, well, to t- take timbre, timbre is, is very multidimensional, and, and the different dimensions don't relate to each other easily. So you can have uh, brightness, for example. Brightness is where the, the energy of the spectrum is in a given sound. So an oboe is much brighter than a viola, for example. So that's one axis in, or one dimension of, of timbre. But another might be how the attack happens. Another one might be how harmonic is the sound. Uh, and um, so there, there are all these different dimensions of, of timbre that is a continuum in itself. Um, but it's very hard to know how to relate them to one another. And there's nothing like the octave that sort of helps you sort of shape things because the, the octave allows you to have fewer elements to deal with in a certain sense for pitch structure. And for and metrical structure, metrical structure is periodic, periodic. So you have a certain metrical grid that repeats, but these timbral dimensions don't repeat as you go along a continuum. So, so these things make it very, really, uh, very complex and very interesting and very difficult. Uh, it's a messy to structure. It's basically it's it's messy material to work with. Yeah, and, and if you're doing if you're doing something like symbols on the page, that's one dimensional. Okay, this is theoretically always consistently the same distance between. Yeah. Like if you're measuring the, I'm thinking of like you know Babbitt like yeah. theory now. It's so it's always going to be the same distance. It's always going to be a triad or, you know, I mean not a tri or like a tritone or right. an octave or that's a right. six. And that's very that's one dimensional. It's easy to measure and it's easy to theoretically push forward because right. it's so clean all the time because it's symbols. It's not a messy sound. Well, I did I did some at Earcom actually in the in the uh, late '80s. I did some experiments on on terrible organization and 
trying to discover timbral intervals and along certain dimensions and starting to build a timbral space that you could sort of move around in in some coherent way. It was a very interesting experiment and something I'd like to resume sometime because I have no ideas about that. But in any case, um, one of the things I discovered uh, is that, and it's kind of obvious actually, which is uh, when you simplify the timbres enough so that you get a, a real handle on that, like say you have something like an interval that is, as you just described, uh, then uh, the life goes out of it. Timbre is interesting because it evolves over time in certain ways, and that's very hard to quantify. So we're we're in a, a musical universe now where the mater- the very materials themselves are are intrinsically difficult to organize, and that's uh, that's a great challenge. So and all I, you can do is mix and match them based on well, intuition, I, I and th- any th- type th- of technological push uh, is difficult. It's difficult, but doesn't mean it's impossible. And I think that eventually people will find ways that are not so one shot deal kinds of things, but things that, that can be more agreed upon. I, th- I think the same is true with, with microtonal organization. There are certain principles of organization around which these things can be structured that, where, where it makes a lot of sense and where it might carry over from piece to piece and help you build a, a musical architecture rather than just an interesting harmony. I'm not sure how to put Is this like your main gripe nowadays? You know what I mean when I say that? Like, Is this your criticism, basically, of people... My age, who are writing music nowadays, it's that we're just we're not focused on structure so much, or we're not obsessed with it, or we have, or we choose materials that are impossible to apply certain structural elements to, or at the very least, extremely difficult. So we're just kind of throwing everything out there intuitively and kind of trying to make it work somehow. Um, I think that that's yeah, it's not a gripe; uh, it's an observation. Obs- and, yes, okay, let's call it um, an observation. And it's a, it's a challenge. I would put it as a challenge to a lot of composers, including a lot of my students. But it's a very, but it's a very interesting challenge, and it's a challenge to me, also, uh, to how to deal with these things in, in ways that uh, are not shallow. Yeah. Do you deal with them? I try to. Yeah. Can you give me like a concrete example now of like how you sat down and took this challenge of a immeasurable, unquantifiable sound and found a way to? work with it in a piece that has enough structural integrity that you are satisfied with it? I, in two ways, yeah, I can respond. I guess I, I find I have a, a really good musical ear, but I uh, maybe it's a generational thing. I, I have a, a trouble hearing um, microtones in my own music in ways that satisfy me. Uh, but still, I'm trying. So I, I wrote a piece recently where I applied certain principles that actually comes out of my music theory. Um, and it was a piece that I'm proud of. It was recently performed. Um, what was it? What was the piece? Uh, it's a piano trio. It's called Times Three. And it was premiered... Actually, I wrote a, a, a non-microtonal version and a microtonal version. And the microtonal version was, was premiered about two weeks ago or a week and a half ago. Why did you write a non-microtonal version? Um, it's the version that doesn't bother you? Uh, no. it's. Uh, I, I started doing it microtonally and I... Um, kept it in mind as I was writing where it would happen. It's a little bit like if you're a diatonic composer and then you suddenly go into a purple chromatic passage. So at certain points in the piece, it goes into sort of a microtonal modulation into that domain. So, um, no, I had it in mind all along. It's just that I, I knew that the performers would have trouble with it at first, and uh, I wanted to hear it both ways. So now I've heard it both ways. Which way do you like better? I'm not sure. 
I'm really not sure. Partly because they they had they haven't played the microtonal version as well as they play the the non-microtonal version. So I'm actually I'm not sure. But anyway, this but the point is I'm I'm doing this. It's one of the ways I want to step out and do something I haven't done before. So, but I want to do it in my own terms and coming out of my own musical world, and uh, not just because I did a analysis of some sound spectrum that, that uh, or, or whatever reason some, some composer might have for doing things. So that's, that's one example. And then in, in timbre organization, I have this idea about timbral consonance and dissonance and um, degrees of, of stability, which I mean, in, intuitions that people have about stability or instability or about uh, consonance and dissonance in a kind of um, metaphorical sense, beyond the, the psychoacoustic sense, are, um, are pretty robust. Or you can think, talk. You can change the metaphor and talk about tension. And I have a whole model of of tension in tonal music and how music tenses and relaxes is very important to me. So I, in in my orchestration or my my treatment of of instrumentation, that becomes a structural dimension. And it's it's not as highly structured as my pitch structure is or my rhythmic structure is. But but it's it's not merely intuitive or just because I like the sound. It's when I compose a certain terrible sound it, it usually has a structural value of some kind can we get into the nitty-gritty of it now can you like get a little bit nerdy and explain to me exactly what it is that is in it is this still the trio that we're talking about or are we no talking no, about that, another? no no something like that would be more in an orchestra piece yeah, or yeah. large ensemble piece where you have a where you have a much ra- wider range of of timbres yeah, exactly to more choices to work with yeah well so that you can yeah so you have a, you have a space a terrible space to work with something like a Violin, cello, and piano. I mean, it's. I hope the timbres are interesting, but in the grand it's, scheme it's, of things, in the grand it's scheme, limited. Yeah. And also, it's it's very discontinuous. I mean, the piano. It's a hard ensemble to write for, in fact, because the piano is so different than the, than the strings. As a result of that, when I write a string quartet, um, I'm much more concerned with timbral organization than I am in a piano trio, because in the in the string quartet, I can I can move in a continuum among all the instruments. So there, I, I can I have a, a palette that's multidimensional. That so in my in my string quartets, I, I really ex- explore timbral organization a lot. Okay, so in your I think I heard it was your latest string quartet, my, my third quartet. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, there, um, yeah, and I have various kinds of noise in, in in it. You know, just things that any composer would. I mean, I've, I haven't invented new sounds. I'll, maybe new textures, but I haven't invented new sounds. Some of my sounds are very noisy. And so then one might ask, well, where, how does the noise fit in with the pitches? And in general, the noises are um, on a continuum of, of dissonance, metaphoric, in a broader sense of dissonance. So uh, what's, what's more relaxed might be very constant. My quartets have a, a lot of my music. Now, has, do, do you has, categorize has, these things intuitively? Yes. Okay. Well, intuitively and consciously. All of this is connected to the pitch structure, which is anything from a, a perfect fifth to a, and a triad in one end to a very extremely you know twelve note chord or or glissandos on the other side. So the timbre then is it becomes an aspect of all that. So I can take a, a certain harmony and I can you know do it with Corleone Trato with Ponticello and it'll sound like noise. Or I can do, you know, degrees where it's less noise, or where it's very totally harmonious, 
in so doing, you you start to create musical structures that are not just pitch, but that are also timbre. So the timbres have uh, a structural value in the discourse as I build up this hierarchy of, of structure. To some extent, this is you know highly structured and thought through. In other places, it's very intuitive, um, but it's always something I think about. It's not just uh, by the seat of my pants. Thank you. 
I've always in in my theorizing about you know relationship between music theory and and, and composition. I've always had an attitude that there's always a certain kind of freedom that's allowed within the theoretical concepts. Yeah, I mean, I I, 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 and so I I don't think people will pick up on that. Yeah. yeah, So um, this has to do with my basic attitude that music is essentially elaborational in structure, and um, the theory presents you with choices, not answers. Well, but you know, you build a building, and there are certain structural things that are fixed. And those are often, uh, you know, very stable and uh, very structural and very theoretical. Or, I mean, have a theoretical reason for them that's based on musical cognition. Uh, other things might be uh, that are more ornamental might be uh, less structured, more spontaneous. I think about music that way, and and I think my music is structured that way. This combination of, of of structure and freedom, or of or theoretical side and and the spontaneous side, and so I always have room for the spontaneous in, in in my music, and there's always things that I don't understand, which is fine. But I sort of know where it is that I don't understand it, and that matters to me because I want to have an orderly universe. I'm I'm wondering how people. This is going to sound maybe a little strange. Perceive it and talk about it with you. Do they talk about it on the terms that you think about it? Is your goal for them to be able to understand it on the terms that you think about it? Or is this all kind of something that you can... Is this you making this theory and also having a, also having a you know, loose and or tight relationship to it, the point of presenting a result that people will take in and be affected by? Or are you, do you want them to be like, oh, wow, listen to this structure. This is amazing. Um, I, just, I, I like anybody else. I just want people to listen to music and enjoy it, or love it, or be moved by it. But you know, you could ask the same question about a theory of tonal music, where we where we have a much more firm knowledge about musical structure and what people are hearing and what they don't, and they're you know very precise theories and models and computational models and lots of experiments. And your average listener will not be able to articulate consciously or verbally. Uh, the things that he or she is is hearing, so you have to find different ways of eliciting the structure that they're hearing, and that's that can lead to very sort of complex experimental situations. So, uh, that, but that's true in about language study too, or about all kinds of uh, aspects of, of of cognition of human behavior. That what people are able to articulate about what they're doing, and uh, how do you ride a bike? You know, you ride a bike, but do you, you know the physics that you, you know, that you at a certain angle when you when you t- turn. Of course, you don't. So the the, the relationship between your normal listener and the structures they're hearing and their ability to articulate it and the relationship between the theory and what it's attempting to describe accurately. All these things are very interesting and complex problems and there's no simple answer. So the answer is that I don't expect anybody to hear the music with all the structure that I put into it in those terms, but I think that that there's an effect that's less of a gap, maybe, I hope, than... um, when listening to Babbitt's music or Boulez's uh, structures in, in Le Marteau Sommetre, uh, which is a piece I like, but you'll never hear the, the structure. It's insane how he put the piece together. It shows that he's a good musician, um, You know that he was able to uh, go through the, the intellectual hoops that he did and come out with something that sounds as good as that. At the end of the day, it's not the intellectual hoops that's the piece. It's the sounds it's, as good as that. It, it's the piece that's, that is what it is. But, but since I mentioned that piece... A piece like La Marche of Sometre is um, a, lo- a lot of it has a kind of statistical quality. It's a certain kind of music. It's very pretty. Boulez likes pretty sounds. 
But it's statistical in the sense that you you don't you can't quite exactly hear that picture, that rhythm, and the sort of patterns of those things very well. Instead, you sort of get a certain kind of texture. Uh, other times, it comes out much more clearly, and it's very memorable. Uh, but in general, there's there's a statistical quality much of the time in listening to to that music, especially when it's very fast. Um, the reason for that is is that it is structured in such a way, and it comes out of his method, that it's very hard to assign musical structure intuitively to it. So listeners will never be able to say why, but I can say why through my theory work. Yeah, exactly. That's um, about to say. Sort of why, why it sounds statistical to them. Uh, and the, so then the question becomes, to me, do I want my music to sound as statistical as that? Um, and the answer is basically no. But at the same time, um, I lack a certain amount of disorder in music too. And I think that the way in which music uh, goes between order and disorder is part of its structure and part of its aesthetic appeal. So music that's that's completely ordered all the time is probably not as interesting on average uh, as music that goes in and out of disorder. And you know, I can find passages in, in Mozart that are disordered, where it's very hard to hear. Except, well, what what did he do there? You know, um, other places it's completely clear. Mozart is is doing that as as part of the discourse, and. I try to do that in my own way, in my own music, but I'm, I'm, I'm interested in, in being statistical some of the time, but not as much of the time as a piece like Martosa Mech. Do you feel like you were actually, you were able to take a piece of music that works despite the gap between the theory and the result and say, actually, that's why it works? Um, it's very hard to generalize about the relationship between what works and uh, a theoretical structure or a perceived structure even. A lot of very simple music in this world, you know, is really not interesting. Um, but it's totally easily cognized and one can say why and how. There, in other words, the relationship between aesthetic value and musical structure and the ways things are put together is, is extremely complex and nobody understands it very well. So I'm, I'm reluctant to make any generalizations about that. Uh, there are pieces that I like a lot that I don't, really don't understand very well. It makes part of me want to understand. But your theory still doesn't equip you with the tools uh, to be like, why um, st- study a piece on those on the terms of cognition and then be able to relate I, I, I why think, you find I think it my, interesting? I think my theory work or other work by other people could probably say something interesting about it, but certainly not everything that's interesting about it because there's so much that we don't know. Uh, about musical cognition and about uh, musical structure and, and and why people like things is is very mysterious. So I, I think one has to be, have a very flexible attitude about these things. And um, I've uh, built up this this music theory work and its relationship to my music out of my personal needs. And I have my convictions, uh, but I also have my self-doubts and my awareness of all the things I don't know. And a recognition there are that that there are different ways to roam, different ways of doing things. So I'm not prescriptive about these things. I'll just leave it at that. That one has to have a flexible attitude, even as, even though one is sometimes pursuing things uh, rigorously. I have one more question that I knew I wanted to bring up before I came here: is that you're able to do this kind of work and pursue your interests and personal concerns? Because you're uh, supported by uh, an academic environment that allows you the space to do that. An ongoing trend is that kind of pool shrinking or too many composers being produced by these institutions that the institutions can no longer support them as they're going out. Is that problematic to this way of thinking? And I'm not just saying about your cognitive, but other, you know, other theories and kind of 
the space for this type of thought and experimentation and to happen. It's not really possible in purely private sector and or subsidized. Um, yeah, well, you're bringing up all kinds of uh, complicated questions. Yeah, the musical world has changed a lot since I was uh, the age of my students. When I was young, uh, there were lots of jobs in academia, and I did that. I started teaching fairly young. And I have an academic background in my family, so uh, it was very natural for me to, to go into academia. And I had my scientific interests, which are greater than for most composers. So what's happened recently, you know, gradually, is, is uh, that there are fewer jobs, especially in the past decade. And at the same time, there are opportunities that exist now that didn't exist so much when I was younger. Many more good new music groups performing. The level of performance is much higher. Uh, orchestras are more likely to perform new music than when I was young. Music technology has grown enormously, and composed, a number of our composers here at, at Columbia find jobs through through music technology in one way or another. It's uh, it's not all negative. It's it's yeah. it, it, I think there's much more variety in the way in which, ways in which composers make a living now. It also differs in Europe compared to America. But does it allow for that thinking? Um, Those other ways is what I'm oh, is what I'm asking. I, th- I think uh, there's always a way if you, if you if you have if you really are convinced about what you want to do. There's always a way. So in a certain way, I'm hard-nosed about that. I think the main thing in, in, in life, in a creative life, is to, is to follow your nose and, and not give up because you're going you're gonna to meet all kinds of obstacles no matter what route you take. If somebody has an idea and, and needs time, uh, there's a way. But have you seen a way recently that's worked like well to, that allows them to think the way you think freely? Um, as part as the, of, of their job, not as a side thing that they do? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, it's a difficult question to answer. My impression, I, I don't know, I guess I'd, I'd, I'd say there's a difference between being in Europe and in being in America. In Europe, there still is a lot more funding uh, you know, through commissions and uh, radio orchestras and radio and, and uh, grants and so on than there is in America. So uh, here it's uh, it really is a problem. If you want to make a living as a composer outside of academia, it's very difficult. So you have to write a lot of music, and you probably have to write it in a very accessible style. It's especially true if you want to write orchestra music or operas. Um, it's very hard to to relate to the to the orchestral world as a composer in America uh, without basically writing commercial music of some kind. So it's something I've struggled with myself. I've, I've never had a comfortable relationship to the orchestra. It has nothing to do with my love of the orchestra or my ability to orchestrate. It has to do with this social situation. So, and the amount of rehearsal time that's available. You know. There's all types of political obstacles that just make it yeah. really difficult for yes. a composer to pursue yes. a unique interest. And always having to deal through a prima donna conductor is really annoying. And all those things. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 So, um, uh, so it's very complicated. Maybe it's a little bit easier in Europe in those kinds of ways. But uh, at the same time, there are a lot more jobs in America, in academia, because America has many more educational institutions, which is one of the great things about American culture, in fact, the envy of the world, that we have all these schools. So that's why we often have European composers coming over to teach here. So, yes, these are, these are difficult, treacherous waters. I don't know how to answer your question beyond that. Yeah. 
Well, I never, I, I don't know how to answer my question beyond that either. But I just ask people because I don't yeah. know. Maybe yeah. someone will be able to drop a gem on me. Yeah. At the same time, you know, if if you're in academia, that that means a lot of time and effort doing things that have nothing to do with being creative, but has to do with sitting on committees and and endlessly, you know, producing documents of things and et cetera. So, um, and also a sense of isolation that might not be suited for every type of personality. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So I've, um, you know, I've made my life in academia from an early, fairly early age. I was teaching already in my late twenties, full time. So um, that's that's just the way it's been for me. Uh, but it's a constant juggling act between academia and uh, creative time, also between doing my theoretical work and my composing. It's always a, a struggle to to balance these things in a in a good way. But you've gotten, I mean, you've probably mastered that. No, right it's always a struggle. I haven't mastered it. I never compose and theorize at the same time because uh, composing is much more intuitive and um, it just somehow feels different. So I, I can use my theory work, but I don't, I don't theorize when I'm composing. So I get in a zone. Uh, you know, I get in a theoretical zone or a composing zone. It feels different. So, But I, I, that means I have to uh, organize my time accordingly. Just like in anything else in life, you have to, you know, you have to organize your time to do your correspondence or something like that. So... Uh, I organize my time around around these different appetites and sort of ability to create uh, a certain frame of mind where where I'm productive. Sometimes teaching is uh, or being a professor is really frustrating because I have to write a gazillion recommendations or I have to judge some application pool that's enormous and to come out with a, uh, with you know three solutions. It's not that I don't believe in those things, but it's just hard because it takes you completely out, out outside of your own work. Some of I have some European composers who uh, who are um, able to because of uh, stipends from their governments or grants of various kinds or, or commissions on a, on a high level who can devote themselves entirely to their own work. Uh, really good friends of mine, and I'm I'm really kind of envious um, in a way. There's, I can't possibly do that as an American, given the, my reluctance to write uh, Hollywood music. So. Um, which is sort of what you would have to do in this country to do that. So one finds solutions as best one can, given all kinds of you know forces in, in life that are partly artistic and partly social and economic and intellectual, and so you have to try to figure these things out. And every every person does it differently. Well, I think that's a good place to end it. We've been talking for a while. Thank you okay. for doing this. Thank you.